So John 13 ends a little bit disturbingly, right? You see a situation where the disciples are feeling troubled. This is why Jesus has to say, look, don't be troubled. If you go up to verse 21 of John chapter 13, it says, When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Jesus was troubled. He knew he would be betrayed. And I can imagine the disciples at this point, they were troubled by that. One of us is going to betray you? One that you've chosen is going to betray you? In fact, it says in verse 22, the disciples looked at one another perplexed about whom he spoke. So they're wrestling with this idea that one of them is going to betray Jesus, whom they love, and they're also confused about who's going to be. Well, what's going to happen? And then he dropped down to verse 33, and and Jesus says to them plainly, kindly and, and warmly, but plainly he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And I can imagine at this point they're going, you're going to leave us? You're going to abandon us? We've left all to follow you and now you're going to abandon us? And then you drop down to verse 37 and when Peter says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus tells him, will you lay down your life for me? Most certainly I say to you, the rooster shall shall not crow till you've denied me three times. So now Peter is consumed with his failure. Not just the potential to fail, but the promise to fail. Not just fail once, but multiple times. And when you think about this, you can understand why their hearts would be troubled. I mean, aren't these the things that trouble us? We, we, we sense that there's a disloyalty, either, either towards the person of God or towards us as believers, People are, are going to betray us. They're not loyal to us. We think they should be better than that. We get confused about what God's doing or why people make the choices they make. We can sometimes feel like God's not around. We don't sense His presence. Has He abandoned us? <laughs> and not to mention failure. We, we can know not just the, 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 the concern that we may fail in the future, but the reality that we have failed so much in the present. So we should be able to relate, man, <laughs> what it's like to have our hearts be troubled. And so when, when Jesus says this, let not your hearts be troubled, it's kind of hard when you read this to not feel like it's a little bit trite. Not be troubled. How could we not be troubled? Lord, you're troubled by the betrayal that's about to come. How could we not be troubled by you talking about leaving and us not being able to follow? How can we not be troubled, Lord, when the one who we thought was the strong one, Peter, you've promised he's going to fail multiple times. How can we not be troubled? And Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Why? You believe in God, believe also in me. Now, now, here's the thing that we really just want to make clear today. This is, the, this is what we're praying the Holy Spirit makes known to us this morning. And that is that the remedy for our troubled hearts, no matter if that trouble comes from we've been betrayed or we're just confused or we feel like God's away from us or we failed yet again, the answer, the remedy to our troubled hearts is seeing God as He is. It's seeing Him as He is.
When Jesus says, let you not your heart be troubled, you believe in God, believe also in me, he's saying, look, don't just have an understanding of what God is like. He's saying the God that you believe in, this covenant God of the Old Testament, in the same way you have faith in him, have faith in me. Now that by itself is a, is a proclamation of deity. Because obviously God alone is worthy of, of a, a certain type of trust. But there's a reality here that, that Jesus wants his disciples, in a, knowing they're going to just go through a really difficult time watching him be crucified, waiting for him to be resurrected, wondering what's going on for 40 days after he's resurrected as the resurrected Christ is telling them all kinds of things about the kingdom, then waiting another 10 days for the Holy Spirit to come upon them, and then experiencing the whole rest of their lives persecution and suffering for no other reason than they love Jesus. He knows this is what is ahead of them, and so he knows, look, I, I know you're troubled, but let not your heart stay troubled. Let it not be weighed down by this trouble. Now, what he's going to do here in this chapter, in fact, it's interesting, I kind of realized as I was preparing this week for this that this really is, in a sense, the peak of the series. The series that we're doing right now, the words in red, we're teaching through the sermons of Jesus. We started way back in January. And this isn't the halfway point. We're about two-thirds of the way through. But this is like the pinnacle. It's the peak. Because we're looking at the words of Jesus because we believe that the words of Jesus uniquely reveal to us who God is. Because Jesus uniquely reveals to us who God is. So there's three main things I want you guys to recognize about who God is. Three things I think we need to recognize about God when our hearts are troubled. And the first thing I think Jesus wants his disciples to see is that he's the God of all comfort. He says, let your, not your hearts be troubled you believe in God, believe also in me. Just by the command, don't be troubled, he's saying, I want you to find comfort. Even in the midst of confusion, even after failure, even looking f- toward the future of more failure, even feeling like there's going to be a separation between you and God, I want you to still find some comfort. And he says he begins with faith. Comfort always comes with believing. Now, it's interesting, too, that that Jesus says this, and this is really important for us, especially for us who really take the Bible seriously. I mean, we're Bible people, aren't we? We, we, We'd spend a lot of time studying Scripture, especially in our church, don't we? And what can happen with that is, as people of the book, as people take Scripture seriously, we can think that the object of our, our faith needs to be ideas. We need to have the right We have faith in the right ideas. That's not false. That's true. It's not less than that, but it's much more than that. Because Jesus isn't just asking his disciples to believe some ideas, some doctrines. He's saying, listen, trust me. Trust me. Do you remember back in in John chapter 11 when uh, you know, Jesus had this family that he was really close to, uh, Mary, Martha, and, and uh, Lazarus, you know? I mean, it says specifically that, that Jesus loved these guys. There was a close relationship that he had with these three. And of course, you know the story, Lazarus died. And so Jesus knew Lazarus was going to die. He delayed when Lazarus was sick, knowing he was going to die. And so when Lazarus dies, Jesus makes his way there with his disciple. And of course, what happens? Martha runs up and says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus begins to tell, talk to her about the resurrection. And, 
And she nods politely. She does believe correctly. She has the right doctrine. Yes, I believe that he, at the end, he will rise again. He will be resurrected. But Jesus says this to her. Listen, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes shall never die. And look what he says. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? See, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he's not saying, okay, can you just initial each one of these points of this doctrinal statement before I, you know, I'm crucified and resurrected and ascend to heaven? Can you please just make sure that you understand these things and you, you agree with this statement? No, he says, do you believe me? Do you trust me? Because this is where comfort is going to come, is believing that God is trustworthy, which we'll talk more about in a minute. So he, he, he says, listen, he says to them in verse two, look, my father's house has many mansions, literally many dwelling places. In other words, there's plenty of room in my father's house for you. And he says, look, if it wasn't so, I would not have told you, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now this is important because it's as if Jesus is saying, listen, I want you to be really clear. I'm talking about reality here. I'm not trying to comfort you with some nice thought. I mean, we've all been to funerals, haven't we, where a person that we know was at best an agnostic before they died, the, the vicar, whoever, is saying, now they're in a better place. Really? How do you know? Do you even believe that? Or is it just a platitude to make us feel better? And Jesus wants to make sure his disciples understand this, this is no mere platitude. I'm not saying to you that I want you to just feel better. I'm saying, listen, I want you to be comforted, but that comfort always comes with the truth, with reality. That's one of the great things about Christianity. It doesn't deny the difficulties of life. There's no no facade in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus angrily rebukes facade, doesn't he? It's called hypocrisy. He wants it to be truth. It's very interesting. The word truth that we'll see later on in verse 6 is a word that means that nothing's hidden. It's full disclosure. What, what can be known is made known. Boom. It's right there. And so he's saying, listen, if there wasn't an afterlife, and this is it's clearly in the context, he's talking about heaven. If this wasn't true, I would have said it's not true. I would just say, look, this is the best life you're going to get, so here's the best way to live it. There you go. But he says, look, this is... This is true. I'm going to prepare a place for you and I want you to know this truth. Remember Jesus said earlier in John chapter 8, right? You shall know the truth and truth will what? Set you free. He says you can define what truth is and when you can define what truth is or when you understand how I've defined what truth is, it's liberating. He's the God of all comfort. So he continues to say in verses 3 and 4, I go to prepare a place for you and he says, And I will, if I do this, I will come again and receive you to myself. Literally, take you to myself. Some people see the rapture of the church in this. I will take you to myself, he says. Listen, and I will, uh, where I, he says, this is the reason why. That where I am, there you may be also. Do you see what he's saying to them? Listen, I know that you're worried that I'm abandoning you, but I'm not. I'm preparing a better place for us preparing a place for you to be with me forever. See, he's not just saying, I want you to feel better today. He's saying, listen, I am sharing with you an opportunity to be comforted forever. 
that there's a reality that this is going to be a comfort that remains through the relationship that we have with you. So do you guys remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that Paul talks about, he talks about, um, uh, he, he writes to the Corinthian church and he says, we, I don't want you to be ignorant of the, of the problems we went through. And he says that, you know, we were basically thinking we're going to die, it's getting really bad. He says that basically we were in a, in a, in a really bad place and, and so we, we, we want you to make sure you understood how bad it was. He said, but God allowed that, why? That we would not trust ourselves but in him who raises the dead. So in other words, he said, this is really serious. We were kind of thinking, this is it, it's over. And God's going, no, 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 it's never over, trust me. But it's interesting, right before he says that, he's saying that sort of um, after the fact, it's already taking place. So right before he says that, he writes these words, listen. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, now this is important because Paul's saying, listen, uh, he, he told the Corinthians, I don't want you to think life's easy. It's not easy for us. It's difficult to do the things that God calls us to. It's painful. Sometimes we think, this is it, we're gonna die. He says, but guess what? God's working through your prayers to not only help us get through these things, but also to be comforted. Comforted. Do you know what it's like to be comforted? Have you ever been so troubled, so agonizing over something, you just, you don't even know how you're going to feel better and then maybe someone you care for and trust puts their arms around you. He says, it's okay. It's going to be okay. And you're comforted. It's an amazing thing. It's, it's an amazingly powerful thing to be comforted, to be, have comfort available to you, to be able to receive comfort. It's an amazing thing. Paul said that, that our God is the God of all comfort. Jesus as the God of all comfort is saying to his disciples, trust me. I, I'm not going to forsake you. He's going to get into this more and more, and he's going to, as we get through this um, John 14 through 17, or 14 through 16 specifically, is what we call the upper room discourse, where, you know, we saw last couple weeks where Jesus washed the disciples' feet, and Joe spoke last week uh, uh, just about the second half of that chapter 13, and this is really the whole same scene. They're in the upper room. They've had this meal. Judas has left, and Jesus is wanting to bring comfort with them. And over and over again, it is about his relationship with them and about how that's in a permanent relationship and they can find comfort in it. He's the God of all comfort. But not just that, listen. He's the God who put on flesh. Look at verse seven. I'm sorry, verse five. Thomas says, okay, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Because you had said in verse four, hey, you know where I'm going and you know the way. And Thomas goes, uh, actually, we don't. Probably the first time in history, the only time in history where a man admitted he didn't know how to go someplace. Didn't need a map. Didn't ask for, direct, ask for directions, right? And so Jesus answers him when he says, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus says, listen, I am the way. Now, in the, in the Greek language, this is emphatic. The word for I there, there's a Greek word I, ego, or ego. And it's only used when it's emphatic. So, so this should be read, I 
am the way. It's also interesting, too, that it says the way, the truth, the life. That definite article doesn't have to be used in the Greek to be implied, but when it is used, again, it's for emphasis. So again, this should be read, I am the way, the truth, the life. And no one comes, no one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, Jesus is making very strong, exclusive statements. Now, you've probably heard this preached before, and so you're probably going, okay, here, we, we know this all, we know the scripture, everybody knows the scripture, but listen, you've got to understand how these guys would have heard this. This is not just you know, some evangelical preacher wanting to kind of get you to believe in Jesus. We do want that, but you understand how these guys heard this, what's going on historically. When these guys hear Jesus making these exclusive statements, as good Jewish men, their minds are probably going directly back to Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. Because Isaiah was a prophet who spoke some of the most profound, exclusive statements of God anywhere in Scripture. Let me read some to you. God speaking through Isaiah, he says, I, even I, am the Lord. Besides me, there is no Savior. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. You know that can be translated in Greek? Alpha, Omega. Jesus is about Himself. He says, besides me, there is no God. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, He who formed you from the womb. Continuing on, he says, I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself. I am the Lord, there is no other. There is no God beside me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, literally recognized me, then, uh, that they may know, that is the unbelievers, may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. God makes it so clear that there is one God and it's Him. So when Jesus says these things to His disciples, they believe He's the Messiah. But when He says these things to His disciples, their, their brains are blown. They're like, what? Is, is He saying what we think He's saying? He's making exclusive statements. I want you to think about, though, what these things tell us about God, what we see about God through what Jesus says. When Jesus says, I am the way, he's not just saying, I've walked the way, he's saying the way is me. That the means to God is a person, his name is Jesus. You know what that tells us about God? It tells us that God is accessible. I want you to think about this for a second. I don't know if you've ever felt like, you know, you wish you could get to God, but there's some sort of wall between you and Him. Have you ever felt that way? Or have you ever been in a place where you felt like, I want to believe, but I just don't know if I can believe? Have you ever felt that way? Do you know what Jesus does when He says this? He's saying, listen, there is no wall. (laughs) There's only a road, and it's me. It's me. A person. God is accessible because of me. Because of who I am and what I'm doing or what I've done through his death and resurrection, you can come to the Father. You can know the Father. When he says, I am the truth, what does that tell us about God? That God's revealed himself. Now, this is important because when he says, I am the truth, he's saying the truth is, again, not just concepts or ideas. 
It's a person. We have a relationship with the truth. He's a person. We understand all things through Jesus. I wish I would have pulled this chart up. I didn't have it. Otherwise, I'd show you on the screen. But um, there was, when we did Colossians, some of you guys were around when we taught through Colossians, we did this little chart. It was Jesus' name in the middle and an arrow up and an arrow down, an arrow to the left, arrow to the right. And we did this chart to kind of, this little image to show the reality of not just what our theology is, but how we should live our lives as Christians. So Jesus is, is at the center of our lives. So we mean Jesus-centered, who he is. What we understand about God, arrow up, we know from Jesus. What we understand about humanity, arrow down, we know from Jesus. What we understand about the past, arrow backwards, we know through Jesus. What we understand about the future, arrow going forwards, we know through Jesus. That's what we mean by being Jesus-centered. That we want to know things through him. So when Jesus says, I am the truth, he's saying, look, I, I am God revealed. This is what you need to know. You need to know me. You need to understand me. Again, doesn't this kind of tell something about how we understand truth, how we even understand doctrine? I was talking to a young man a couple weeks ago in my office about this very issue, very, very bright young man. He's a, he's a, he's a believer. He's a neat young man. And he's, he, he's reading some pretty weighty theological books. Good stuff, too, really good stuff. And we're talking about stuff, and he's asking me questions. And I said to him, I'll, I'll say his name is Bob. It's not Bob. But I said to him, I said, Bob, you can keep reading those books, but you're never going to know the answers to your questions unless you just walk with God. I'm not saying stop reading the books, but if you don't, read, <laughs> if you don't walk with the God of the book, it doesn't, you're not going to know. A great understanding have those who do your commandments, the psalmist says. There's something in relating to God as, uh, relating to Jesus as the revealer of God, that we walk with him, that we know him, that he's personal. He says, not only that, I'm not just the way and not just the truth, but he says, I am the life. We might call this God experienced. When Jesus talks about the life, he doesn't just mean that he's the creator of life, though he is. The scripture's really clear about that. John says that himself in the beginning of John's gospel, right? The scriptures make it clear uh, that God made all the universe through his word, Jesus being the word become flesh in John 1. So he is the creator of, of life, that's true, but he's also, he's also life itself. Jesus isn't just someone who makes your life experience better, he is the very reason and purpose for your existence. This is why you're miserable when you live for other things. This is why you, you are frustrated when you think, this new relationship, that'll satisfy, and it doesn't. This new job, that'll satisfy, and it doesn't. This new car, this new house, this new holiday. And it never quite satisfies because when we live for these things, we're living for something other than what we were created for. Jesus is life, the rest is details. And so when he says to his disciples, listen, I am the life. I'm not just trying to teach you stuff about God. I am the very life of God himself. You can experience God himself through me.
And I, and I want to talk to you guys now who might not yet be believing. And I ask you a really serious question. What's better than God? Seriously, I mean, what, what, are you gonna, what can you possibly think of that is more of an ultimate than God himself? And Jesus is saying, when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and life, he's saying, listen, God is accessible. You're, you're looking at him right now. God is revealed. You're hearing him right now. God is life. You can experience him right now. This is what he's offering. See, the reason I, I say the second point, the thing we need to recognize is, is that he is God who put on flesh. This is such an, a, a familiar truth to us who are churched. We talk about this reality, Jesus being God, quite a bit. It's so familiar that we can forget the implications of it. Someone quite close to me recently was having a conversation saying how they struggled with understanding what it means to have a relationship with God. I, I, I know what you mean about people, but how do you have a relationship with God? And, and the reality was this person still doesn't seem to grasp that God has personage, that God is relationship. The reason we long for relationship is because we've been made in His image. Animals long to reproduce after themselves. Animals instinctively have social standards. Humans want to know and be known. We have that because we're made in the image of God. And Jesus is saying, this is how it works. This is how you know God, through me. I am the life that you're looking for. He's God who put on flesh. Now, he says these things, and then in verse 7, after he says this, he says, he says to his disciples, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. And in a sense, he's kind of given a general rebuke. Okay, guys, you should have figured out that, I'm, you know, that I am showing you who the Father is, and... You know, so from now on, let's settle it. You're going to know the Father through me, right? And of course, they still don't get it because Philip says in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. Now, Philip's probably asking for a similar experience that Moses had on the mountain. Do you remember when Moses receives the commands from the Lord? Um, he has this relationship. He talks to uh, the Lord face to face. He has this relationship that's quite rare in the Old Testament. And he says to the Lord, just show me your glory and it'll be enough. And so you know the story, right? God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and just kind of the trail of his glory passes by, kind of puts his hand over Moses. And, and Moses gets just kind of, a, a, kind of the after trail <laughs> of who God is. And it's so, it's so revelatory and, and transformative that he actually goes down the mountain with his face glowing and he has to cover it up. And so you get a sense maybe that what these guys are thinking, maybe Philip's going, Lord, some of that Moses action would be good right now. That would be really cool. Just kind of like, you know, show us and we'll start glowing. It'll be amazing. We'll actually see God for who he is. Now, this isn't all totally bad. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I can read this and kind of go, what's wrong with these guys? But the truth is, it's not actually even a bad desire. God, I want to see you as you are. I want to know you as you are. That is a good hunger. That's a good appetite. But the problem was, Jesus says to them in verse 9, Have I been with you so long and you have not yet known me, Philip? 
He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Now, it's easy for us to kind of look at Philip and say, yeah, how could they not get this? But don't forget, this is before the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and the sending of God's Spirit. Not only that, let's be honest, don't we do the same thing? How many years have many of us sat in church and we still wonder, what is God like? Is he really like this? Does he really do that? Is he really this good? And I think the Lord would say to us with that same gentle rebuke, have I been with you so long and you still don't recognize me? You still don't know who I am, what I'm like? So Jesus makes these exclusive statements. And only Jesus can give us this perfect picture of God. See, we're talking about, aren't we, the the remedy for our troubled hearts and that it's seeing God for who he is. Guys, this has always been the situation. Those whom God has made and redeemed, they've always struggled with just keeping their focus on God himself. It's just something about our brokenness where we stop treating God as the end and we treat him as a means to the end. Don't get me wrong, God is the means as well. When Jesus says, I am the way, he's saying, I am the means, okay? But when he says, I'm the life, he's saying, I am the end. (laughs) And we do this as God's people. We forget the best thing God can give us is himself. And so the thing that we should long for, if we really want the best for our lives, what we should long for is to know God himself. And it's not, just a, it's not just us as Christians. This is what God's covenant people have always struggled with. I don't know if any of you guys have read the book of Hosea, the Old Testament book of Hosea. Amazing story where God calls Hosea the prophet to marry a prostitute named Gomer that he might prophesy to his people, he might reveal to his people the reality of their wayward hearts and, and the fact that they've prostituted themselves off to false gods. So towards the end of Hosea, or actually about in the middle of Hosea, God says this to his people, or Hosea says this for God to his people. He says, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us in pieces, now he will heal us. He has injured us, now he will bandage our wounds. In a short time, he will restore us so that we may live in his presence. Do you see how that's familiar to what we have here in John 14? Who's, who, who, who said the things that brought trouble to their hearts? Jesus did. <laughs> Jesus was the one who was troubled in their presence. Jesus was the one that told them, one of you is going to betray me. Jesus was the one who said, look, you can't come with me now. Jesus was the one that said, uh, look, um, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the clock crows. So it was, it was what Jesus said to them that thought, oh man, made their hearts troubled. So in a very real way, this is the issue. He tore them. He injured them. But he did so that he might heal them, that he might bandage their wounds, that he might restore them, and listen, so that they might live in his presence. This is why Hosea says, oh, that we may, might know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. He will respond to us as surely as the arrival of the dawn of, or the coming of the rains in early spring. Let's know him. Listen, 
At this point, I want to be really clear. If you think knowing God is simply about having a more consistent quiet time, you're missing it. Having a consistent daily time to read your Bible and to pray is a great discipline that every believer should uh, seek to develop. Every single one of us. If we are Jesus followers, spending time in his word, spending time in the secret place playing is, is irreplaceable. We need that. But if you think that's what we're talking about when we say let's know the Lord, just that discipline, you're missing it. Do you realize that God has put you in the home, the neighborhood, the family, the workplace, the church, so that all that you do has the opportunity for you to know Him. Did you know that? He planted you where you are so that you could know Him. That's what He wants for you. He's not just saying, okay, look, I need to kind of convince people to do a bunch of work for me because I can't do it myself. Last time I came, they killed me, so it's not going to work out, you know. That's not what's going on. He's saying, listen, I want to give you the best thing I can possibly give you as my creation. I want to give you myself. I want you to know me, and you can know me through every aspect of life, whether it's a good aspect or a difficult aspect. You can know me. This is what Jesus is trying to tell them. Listen, don't let your hearts be troubled. Yeah, it's going to be a tough time coming soon, but don't be troubled. Why? Because you're going to know me. You're going to know the Father. Lastly, we need to understand that he is the God worthy of trust. He says to him in verse 10, do you not believe that I am the Father? I'm sorry, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So first he poses as a question. Then he says it as a statement, actually as a command. Verse 11, the first part of verse 11, he says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Now, if you hear that statement and you go, I have no idea what that means, you're in good company. Because there's a mystery there. The mutual indwelling of the Godhead. Okay, we can kind of see like, okay, I see that maybe Jesus is in the Father and maybe then the Spirit is in Jesus and we kind of picture like those little Russian doll sets or something and we kind of think that's kind of how it works but that's not what he's saying, is it? He's saying, I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. What? We can't get our heads around it. We're not meant to. There's some deep, important theological truths that we could tease out here but I'm not going to I'm not going to lose you with that. But here's the reality. When Jesus says this to his disciples, he's not just trying to make some important theological statements, though there are some amazingly important theological statements there. He's wanting, listen, he's wanting them to understand that they can trust in the reality of God. So when I became a Christian October 4th, 1987, not growing up in the church, I had a radical conversion experience. Just God just grabbed me and chucked and pulled me out of the world. It was, it was violent and glorious. <laughs> and, and God did this radical work. And about two years or so into after becoming a Christian, I was in Bible college, and I started questioning things. And wondering about, well, can I really trust the Bible? How do I really know this stuff is true? And I, had this, I took this apologetics class, which is the reasons for the faith, defense for the faith. And it was phenomenal. It was just a really great class. And it showed me that there's, I can have intellectual and philosophical integrity and believe in Scripture and believe in Jesus. 
And there are really good arguments for this. If you, if you are struggling with intellectual questions about the Christian faith, please ask those questions. I, I say that as a fellow cynic. There's reasons to believe, okay? But you know what I found more than anything? In the 30 years that I've been a Christian, do you know why I believe God is real? It's not just because of the cosmological argument for God. I know God is real because of Jesus. See, we don't have to talk about the idea that there could be a God or the, or the, the rational, rationale for there being a God, the, reason, the reasonableness of there being a God. We don't necessarily have to just talk about that because what we have is historical record of when God pierced history. So when Jesus says, I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, he's saying, don't you get it? God has pierced history. God showed up speaking to Moses. God showed up speaking through the prophets. But now God showed up. He's here. 1995, there was a pop song. I think it got to number four in the Billboard charts called uh, One of Us. And the lyrics were something like, what if God was one of us? Just a stranger on a bus trying to find his way home. And it was this pop song that was kind of asking these questions and I kind of looked it up to see if there was any kind of religious significance and actually the writer said, I just wrote it to impress a girl. And it worked. She married me, we have two kids. That's what he said. But it's interesting, he, he writes the song as if there's, gosh, wouldn't, wouldn't that be a noble idea if God actually just became a man? He did. He did. And even the disciples are trying to have, get their heads around that and Jesus is saying, don't you get it? It's happened. God is here, Emmanuel, God with us. It's happened. So that's why he says in the second part of verse 10, listen, he says, the words that I speak to you, I do not speak in my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the work. Listen to this. Jesus is saying, listen, you've got to trust the reality of God. God is real. You don't need to doubt. You remember when the psalmist says, Psalm 14, the psalmist says, the fool said in his heart, there is no God. You ever thought about that? He didn't say the fool shouts to the crowds, you know, there is no God. He didn't say the fool writes in the newspaper, there's no God. He says the fool says in his heart. How would he know what a fool says in his heart unless he was the fool who said it before? We've all said that in our hearts, haven't we? Is there really a God? And Jesus is saying to us, listen, don't you get it? I'm proof there's a God. <laughs> he's real and he's good. But also, listen, he says, the words that I'm speaking to you, I'm not making these things up, basically. I'm not speaking just in my authority. These works, or these, uh, it's the Father who dwells in me who does the work. Interesting. He didn't say it's the Father who dwells in me who speaks the words, but who does the work. The implication there is, listen, when Jesus speaks, God works. So when we read the words in red, when we study the words in red, you know what we can be confident of? God's working. Man, it makes me feel good as a pastor. <laughs> God's working. Even my sermon is rubbish. God's working because it's the words in red. <laughs> God's working. We can trust the words of Jesus. But he didn't just say that. Look at the second part of verse 11. We're almost done. He says, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. He says, you can trust the works of Jesus. Do you remember John the Baptist? John the Baptizer. John the Baptizer basically is the forerunner of Jesus. He's the uh, who, who Isaiah prophesied would come before the Messiah saying, this is the Messiah. 
He points to God's chosen king, the Messiah. And so when John comes on the scene, he's baptizing lots of people, preparing them for the coming of the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, he backs off. He says, I, I must decrease so that he, the Messiah, can increase. And he points people to Jesus. Now there's no indication, it's not clear at least, that John ever saw Jesus do miracles. Other than maybe the miracle he saw at Jesus' baptism when he hears the Father's voice, this is my beloved Son, in whom well pleased. He doesn't see Jesus doing messianic stuff necessarily because he kind of fades to the background and of course still continues his prophetic ministry, tells off Herod for marrying his brother's wife, gets chucked in jail and he's about to die. So he's in jail, right? John the Baptist is in jail and what happens to him? He begins to think, maybe I was wrong about this Jesus stuff. He begins to wonder, is he the right one? This is in Matthew chapter 11. And he sends his, he, John sends two of his disciples, two of his students, to Jesus. And here, here's what we read, okay? He goes to, to, to the students, or the students go to Jesus and they say, are, John wants to know, are you the one or do we wait for another? In other words, he still believes God's going to send the Messiah. He's just thinking, maybe I got the Messiah wrong. Maybe it's not Jesus. And so here's what Jesus says. Jesus answered and said, go tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended, literally scandalized because of me. I want you to think about this. The followers of John, the, the, the students of John who are trying to get Israel ready for their king, they're sent by John saying, okay, Jesus, are you actually the Messiah? Did we get this right? John's probably not seen any miracles. So what happens? Jesus does a whole bunch of miracles in front of these guys. And says, go back, and sends them back and says, you go tell Jesus, you go tell John what you saw Jesus do. That he showed the authority of God over demons, over sickness, over creation, over death. You go tell him. And so he, they told John, of course, John believed. And I want you to think about this. That means John believed without seeing. Think about that. Because Jesus would say to Thomas later on, poor old doubting Thomas, uh, Thomas did later on, when Thomas is thinking, I don't know if this Jesus guy actually rose from the dead, when he sees Jesus resurrected and actually touches the resurrected Christ and says, my Lord and my God, Jesus says to Thomas, because you have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Guys, listen. I know that your hearts are troubled. I know that in this life, our hearts get troubled. I, I, I can't say I don't have any prophetic word right now uh, that says I know why you're specifically troubled. Maybe you're troubled because you feel abandoned by God. Maybe you're troubled because you failed once again or you're fearing failure in the future. Maybe you're troubled because you're just confused. You don't understand what God's actually doing. But here's what I know. Jesus would say to you this morning, you believe in God? Believe also in me. Do you see the kind of God that I am, Jesus would say. That I am the God accessible. I am the God revealed. I am the God experienced. Because he's not promising to do away with all those troubles now necessarily. 
but he is promising to reveal himself to you through those troubles. I asked in the beginning, can you relate to these troubles? I'm asking you now, can you see God? Do you see what he's like? Do you look at the the face of Jesus and think, God, you're glorious. You're glorious. 